Hello my friends, it is me, it is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural and the just plain weird. So thank you for joining me for another episode. Today we are going to be beginning a deep dive into an aspect of culture and philosophy loosely inspired by the internet and its changing place in our lives. So we're going to be focusing on a kind of stranger countercultural sort of topic for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be taking an overview of ideas and themes such as cyberpunk ideas, techno-paganism, transhumanism, and AI and the technological singularity. So this will be a bit of a whistle-stop tour of a big topic, but one I am personally just hugely interested in. It's one of those topics that if you know me personally, you know that I will not shut up about and any piece of media that deals with it, I just absolutely love it. So when the internet became in the 1990s, the global network that we know it as today There was a myriad of theories about what this may mean for us as a society and us as a species. The world was connected in a way that it had just never been. Questions were raised about what may come from this web of communicating machines that now encircled our globe. From this creation, which seemed to herald the end of geographic borders, the democratisation of information and the capacity for seemingly limitless connections with others, sprung utopian theories promising an entirely new way of life. What's more, as New Age beliefs were maturing and evolving in an increasingly technological age, theories such as James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, which contends that the Earth is a single self-regulating organism, were being translated into this new digital medium. By a man-made and freely available construction, the world had been connected into one large, arguably self-regulating and self-governing web. Expanded even further by techno-paganism and associated theories, we get the idea that the web itself and all man-made technology may contain some kind of innate spirit by the pure virtue that it is man-made. But they weren't the only people to imply that the internet may have had something more going on than its network of wires would imply. As the pace of technological progress continued and the network grew, certain emergent properties came from it, and parallels were drawn between the structure of the internet and the structure of the human brain, as well as other intelligent organic structures. Structures the kind that we often refer to as superorganisms. So in the same way that a hive of bees chooses its new home by way of an avalanche of agreement, people connected with near-instant feedback seemed to be able to cooperate in ways that were assumed to be impossible. It was thought that the selfishness of the human would make group consensus largely impossible. But as the Lauren Carpenter-Pong experiments, an experiment on collaborative control, showed, an auditorium was able, with no centralised control, to be able to come to a near-instantaneous decision on the placement of the paddle in Pong. And they did this with a very high level of control. So how this was set up was there was an auditorium that was split down the middle and all the members of the audience were given a paddle that could either show green or red. 
And depending on where they were placed in the audience, whether they showed green, the paddle would go up. If they showed red, the paddle would go down. And very, very quickly, with this known format of the game being viewable and instant feedback, people began to find themselves on the screen. And then once a ball was put into play, very, very quickly a group consensus was formed. It seems that there is some emergent property in large connected groups that overcomes the individual's tendency to rash action. It seemed that this was a property that was kind of inherent to these groups by virtue of their connection. And what was the internet if not a large group of connected people? And more interestingly, why did its structure and properties as a whole resemble in many ways the web of connections we recognise as the human brain? Long believed to be the seat of intelligence and self-awareness. If the internet seemed to echo the human brain in structure and complexity, the question was whether we were heading towards a point in the future where the internet would wake up, would spring into consciousness, would gain self-awareness. Would it, like other organic structures, move from a state of seeming chaos, pass through a point of singularity and become its own being? Or could you argue that this has already happened? Today we're going to be focusing on the heyday of 90s cyberculture, looking at where we were theorised to be just before the millennium, building on the cyberpunk ideas of the 80s and the works of sci-fi writers such as William Gibson with Neuromancer, which is the novel by which we get the word cyberspace, by the way, that's what popularised the term cyberspace. We are going to be looking at this vision of a very... 90s internet before social media where it was a playground of unbounded possibility and growing at an incredible pace. This section is hugely informed by Mark Derry's wonderful book on a subject, Escape Velocity, Cyberculture at the End of the Century. Let's get into it. Summarised by Derry in 1996, I will quote for you a quick overview as to the tone of many 90s internet theories. Increasingly, the musings of scientists, science fiction novelists, and futurologists are inflected with a millennial mysticism. They predict the creation of human-level machine intelligence by 2010, a development they contend will catalyse quantum leaps in robot evolution leading ultimately to a universe watched over by godlike machines. The internet in the 90s was growing explosively by the day. Indeed, the internet in its earliest days was growing by a rate of about 800% year on year. And so huge leaps and bounds seemed to be just right round the corner. Quoting Derry again, The inevitable result will be the ascent of a super-evolved, technologically enhanced, post-humanity. So how exactly do we get to this point? So the hippie poet Richard Brautigan showed that 90s culture was not a completely new beast and did not spring up fully formed as a direct result of the internet only. It may in fact have come out of 60s culture or be the children of 60s parents, which although the 60s seemed to be antithetical to it, embraced technology. It embraced science and particularly mass media to spread its mind-expanding message. 
So you can argue that the sort of 90s cyberculture is a kind of reaction to this 60s version of expanding your mind, but in a new medium, in a fresh medium, in a completely new area for a new generation. The poem, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, which lends its name to the Adam Curtis documentary of the same name, which we will talk about later, is a great example of the utopian ideas that came from early internet culture. So even though it was written in the 60s, it influenced a lot of the thinkers we will talk about today. So I will quote the poem for you now. I like to think, it has to be, of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labours and joined back to nature, return to our mammal, brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. This is an idea of a technological utopia, the concept that the incredible pace of technological innovation would make all of our lives easier year on year, would give everyone access to education, would only grow and evolve to the point that most manual labour was unneeded, and we could, through technology, get back to some innate version of humanity and be free. The early internet of the 90s was created by and for humans, mostly by hobbyists, and provided a platform to share new and radical ideas, allowing the individual to speak to the entire world. It was a chance for the whole of humanity to work together to transcend our previous limitations, or so it seemed. So first man conquered the air with flight, now to a certain extent, space in its entirety could be conquered, with messages traversing the globe near instantaneously. And again, expanding on these ideas of sort of emergent traits coming out of large interconnected groups that somehow react faster than the speed of regular reflexes, this seemed to be an unbounded possibility. What could come from this? It seemed like continuing in this direction, anything was possible and it wouldn't be too long before all of the inconveniences of life were negated entirely. It goes without saying, but this theory and the hedonism we associated with unbounded cyber freedom had its critics and detractors from the get-go. And their arguments still hold a lot of sway to this day. Namely, again, in Derry's words... They were argued to be taking refuge in republics of gratified desire, and these divert attention away from governmental and corporate challenges to personal liberty right now all around us. To turn on and drop out did not weaken the state. Quite the contrary, it drained off potentially subversive energies. So similarly, one of the bigger criticisms of the associated philosophical idea, transhumanism, is in that it diverts attention away from fixable issues, betting on a future which may never come, or will not come for everyone. Again, we will come back to this related concept in future episodes. There is an argument, though, that the internet just adapted to some of the spiritual needs of the time. The noise and the static of the internet could create the same kind of like reflective surface as does a crystal ball or the same kind of auto-hypnotic trances created by staring at a detuned TV set, for example. These are the 
examples in Escape Velocity. Techno-pagans then are said to poach ideas from cyberculture in order to democratise spirituality and its resources. To practice this kind of spirituality, all one needs is access to the internet. Could it be then that these utopian theories were more a work of faith, encouraged by this white noise of the early garish internet, all strobing banners and dial-up modems, then they were a true belief for the future, or a true prediction for the future. The internet undoubtedly paved the way for new experiences and new connections. Its utility and flexibility is evident in that the ways in which the internet has permeated our daily lives have only increased since its rise to popularity. But the same criticisms remain. The internet in many ways reflects a version of reality, but one that can be dangerous to fully immerse oneself in. There is no shortage of media and real-life accounts on the dangers of mistaking the virtual world for the real one. Because at the end of it all, as much as we wish it were, it is not yet possible to jettison your body and escape into the net. Although, of course, some will always try. Siberia, Life in the Trenches of Hyperspace is another book discussing technology and the drug subcultures of the 1990s, with its author Douglas Rushkoff immersing himself in the society of the time. Rushkoff attempts to unite the seeming chaos and intensity of the early 90s internet culture and culture in general in a premise stemming from chaos theory, that every chaotic system appears to be adhering to an underlying order. As we mentioned, early internet was a collage of personal and education sites and very early corporate attempts. The ways in which people used the net were still evolving, standards were still being developed and agreed upon. It was what many consider the Wild West of the internet days. But Rushkoff believed that this chaos was less to do with a new technology and people feeling out how to use it, but more that, as a structure of connected humans, it reflected just what it means to be a group of humans. What goes on inside any one person's head is reflected in some manner on every other level of reality, says Rushkoff. So any individual being, through feedback and iteration, has the ability to redesign reality at large. So what he was saying was the internet resembled us as it was made by us, and if our minds or wants changed, so would it. But as Mark Derry summarises, by this logic we arrive at an implausible cyber-reality where the omnipotence of thoughts prevail. Rushkoff uses the Gaia hypothesis as a springboard for his speculation that the planet may become self-aware once it passes through, as he calls it, the galactic time wave of history. This time wave, incidentally, was set to occur around the year 2012, coinciding with the so-called end of the Mayan calendar. It was thought that at this point, time itself would end, as the planet moves up, he says, to a new plane of reality. 
It was the sheer pace of progress that made people think that we were mere decades away from surpassing our greatest and our most interconnected weaknesses, being death and time. Would the internet, this web of connection capable of communicating at the speed of light, finally surpass human limits and usher in a period of consciousness without the need for biological bodies and their temporal trap? In Rushkoff's view, the internet was the first step in this realisation. But related to this, Rushkoff's belief that the planet is becoming sentient has its roots in the futurist Jerome Clayton Glenn's contention that the Earth will soon have as many human inhabitants as there are neurons in the human brain. Just incidentally, I don't know what figure he was using. I gave this a Google today and, you know, in our year 2022, apparently there are 86 billion neurons in the human brain. We are not close to having this kind of population, but you can imagine that with the sort of exponential growth that we were experiencing, it's not out of the realms of possibility to have a global population around 86 billion. It's a very high number, but but still. Anyway, anyway, I digress. At this juncture, he speculates, humanity will somehow form a collective consciousness, causing the planet to wake up through digital communications networks as the final stage in the development of Gaia. So then we get this idea of waking up again, this idea that it will spring into consciousness. So why would it do this? Because it represents the kind of singularity that causes billions of molecules to oscillate in synchronicity. It's the point at which order stems from apparent chaos. So this is all being floated off the back of chaos theory. So Jerome Clayton Glenn's theories were challenging previously assumed truths around hierarchies and hierarchical management in particular. He theorised that progress was better achieved by working towards various aims at once, as many issues, especially social issues, were overlapping, and progress in one area most of the time improved other areas. Not all areas, but other areas as well. He championed then horizontal organisational structures. So organisation through connecting different lines of action through nodes. In essence, challenging the previously held assumption around parallel processing and web-like structures. There were certain emergent truths stemming from web-like structures which called into question previous assumptions about how best to apply human effort towards a goal. There seemed to be huge power in these web-like formations, and in many ways they represented the future of distributed human endeavours. So we're at the theory that past a certain threshold of connectivity, the membrane which computer networks are creating over the surface of the planet begins to come to life. And it does this as an unbiased scientific reaction, purely as that is how masses of individuals connected behave. They form a superorganism with its own traits and emergent personality, the same way a flock of birds or a hive of bees can organise themselves without central control, faster than the speed of biological reaction. As Derry says... For some, it was thought that this could create 
the universality of consciousness foreseen by Dante when he predicted that men would continue as no more than broken fragments until they were united into an inclusive consciousness. Or, as he puts more simply, when enough of us get together this way, we will have created a new life form. It's evolutionary. is what the human mind was destined to do. Gibson, the author who popularised cyberpunk with his debut novel Neuromancer, in its sequel, On the Shared Digital Fantasy Land That Is The Matrix, sure, it's just a tailored hallucination we all agreed to have, cyberspace, but anyone who jacks in knows it's a whole universe. For all the criticisms people have of the internet, it has a way of drawing people in in a variety of ways. One of the emerging theories as to why has to do with how we interface with machines, in that it may be an extension of how we use tools in general. It could be that what we generally view as the body, as distinct from the rest of the world, may be a more permeable and changeable entity than we may want to believe. Therefore, early 90s internet theories are very tied up with ideas of the body, and particularly the ideas of where the body ends and begins. So on describing some of the VR-piloted machine bodies created by Mark Pauline in the 80s and 90s, who is a key figure in sort of cyberpunk beliefs, which blended the ideas between sort of control and autonomy, body and machine, we get the term telepresence, the out-of-body sensation that occurs when the gap between sense perceptions and simulated reality is sufficiently narrow that the user is convinced that he is there. As the internet grew, became faster, more neatly optimised to our wants and needs, it started a process by which it became less visible, and the reason for this may be in our brains. So when in control of Pauline's strange homemade metal giant, he says, you start to imagine your body in different ways just like you do when you're in an isolation tank. The technology becomes transparent because of the comfort level. Once you achieve transparency, interesting things start to occur. It doesn't take much because the mind is actively trying to meld with anything. As the web matures, it is becoming easier and easier to access it and the frameworks by which we do this are melting into the background in a way that they weren't in the 90s. So arguably we have passed the sort of ISP arms race of the 90s, and now the way by which we get online has somewhat faded into the background by design. And therefore, all we're left with is the internet itself and the content itself, and it draws us in. So again, we have this idea that there is some sort of Emergent quality in the internet itself inherently that is kind of attractive to our brain. And it may be, again, because it is similar to our brain. So a lot of 90s internet theories are to do with this idea of a brain-like structure. Similarly, there is an argument that the internet, due to its sheer speed, collapses the distance between speech and action. So in a world where just through the fact that your words are available to everyone, instantly, saying is equal in many cases to doing. So think particularly of cases involving 
sexual harassment or inciting of terrorism, for example. These are two very extreme examples, but you get the message. In this argument, the computer collapses the difference between the actual and the virtual. The internet as we know it today does not exist as a distinct fantasy land as celebrated and abhorred in Neuromancer or The Matrix. The internet and our real lives are becoming harder to separate, and the fantasy of this concept may lie in the idea that there can ever be a distinction in the first place. As our understanding of ourselves is influencing how we understand and interact with technology over the passing decades, our understanding of that technology is also changing how we understand our minds and bodies. So despite the fear and paranoia surrounding the idea that this is all just a slippery slope towards a complete degradation of the natural human, human bodies are already melding with machines in ways we accept and encourage today. Advancements such as pacemakers, joint replacement, and more and more sophisticated robot and implant-controlled prosthetics, these items become part of the human body but show how this membrane between what we consider as human and not is very permeable and changing. And more and more we're seeing the ideas that these human implants may be connected to the web in some way or may benefit from the machine learning that has come out from modern web. This process has only continued from where it was in the 90s, And we don't consider people with limb prosthetics to be part machine. Even very sophisticated prosthetics, which are paired to force feedback and anchored directly to other muscles in the body. Our conception of ourselves appears to be blending with the technology we use. It may in fact be the thing that makes us human, that we use to contrast ourselves with other animal species. Our ability to use tools as an extension of our bodies. As the world became more and more connected with every passing year, as personal computers became ubiquitous, psychological themes of the 90s increasingly situated the human brain as computer-like, as the utility of the home computer and internet became clear to our everyday lives. Each of us has, at his disposal, the most incredible computer on the planet, But unfortunately, no one gave us an owner's manual. These are the words of Tony Robbins, and in the 90s he was ready and waiting to help us awaken the giant within in his self-help books and achieve the kind of self-mastery that would mean we can achieve our wildest dreams. The logic goes, if computers and computer networks can be hacked, manipulated, and can serve as vehicles for all kinds of spiritual growth. If the human brain is similar to it, then it has the same weaknesses and strengths. Rewiring yourself to feel and behave consistent with your new, empowering choices. This puts forward the idea of thoughts and thought patterns as software to be optimised. And this again is a theme from Neuromancer, the idea that memories can be software that is running on the hardware of our bodies. These are not new ideas, but they are ideas that are really starting to gain traction. Indeed, the opposition of the dead, heavy flesh, meat, 
and the ethereal body of information and discorporated self is one of cyberculture's defining dualisms. Neuromancer focuses often on the mind-body split in cyberculture. Chase, the protagonist of Neuromancer, exemplifies the techno-colonisation of the body. Bodies, like every square foot of, of public space and the natural environment, are corporate property in Neuromancer's near-future dystopia. Even as the characters in a novel gain and lose their agency, their bodies still end up at the mercy of others for the sole reason that they are bodies. However, implying the existence of the mind as distinct from the body sets up this theory as an idea of faith, of a kind of soul that exists as distinct from the body. In reality, as we understand it, consciousness and neurobiology are inextricably linked. In fact, there is an increasing debate of how much we consider as of the mind is actually influenced or even seated in other areas of the body, such as the delicate web of hormones that governs much of our moods and emotions. Another web for sure, but much harder to isolate and put in a sort of vat on life supports. Ultimately, as Derry summarises, what the Siberians appear fated to learn from their ventures into pure electronic consciousness is that ultimate detachment is not the same as freedom. Escape is no substitute for liberation, and rapture isn't happiness. The sound and light show at the end of time seems bound to disappoint. So the 90s would not bring freedom from our meat prisons, but it would bring new ideas about consciousness and intelligence which would transform as the web moved into a new era, Web 2.0. Communities and user-generated content grew and began to shape the web into what we know it as today, and something subtly new. And of course, the theories around it change similarly. We will continue with this next week. Now we have this foundation laid down. I know it was a bit of a brief tour and it was just throwing a lot of concepts out there, but like the web, a lot of these ideas will kind of evolve and mature as time passes and as we get closer and closer to the internet of today. So I can't wait to continue this. You can find me in the meantime as Weird Horizon on Twitter, where I will post updates on upcoming topics and little interesting things that I find along the way. You can also find me on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast, so come and bother me there if you fancy it. For now, bye.